leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Orchestra Biomed may play at the intersection of drugs and devices, but its business strategy is clearly drawn from the biopharmaceutical industry. The company develops its pipeline and then leverages strategic alliances with global partners who can best commercialize its products and maximize their potential. We spoke to David Hochman, CEO of Orchestra Biomed, about the company's therapeutic devices, the large market opportunities it's targeting, and how it seeks to rewrite the way medtech companies think about partnering. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Danny. It's uh, great to be speaking with you. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about Orchestra Biomed Life at the Intersection of MedTech and Biopharmaceuticals and your recent financing events. Let's start with Orchestra more broadly, though. How do you describe the company? So it's a great question. It's something since we founded the company and started this business model about a year and a half ago, we spent a lot of time on because um, it's not an easy answer, but these days really we're describing ourselves as a strategic development partner to market leaders in the medtech space. Um, we are a biomedical innovation company, and at the core of what we do is the development of high-impact products for really major unmet needs in large uh, medical condition, large market major medical conditions. Our lead products focus on artery disease, the number one killer in the world, and hypertension, the number one contributing risk factor. But our business model really, and I started with the strategic partner to industry, is about really enabling the, we think, more capital efficient, the more um, uh, successful realization of these products, bringing them to patients and to physicians through strategic partnerships with established commercial market leaders and where we're going to share the risk and share the rewards, share the challenges of development and commercialization. And we think that's really, at this point, the key differentiator and something novel that we're bringing to the medtech industry that we think is an important innovation in and of itself um, in terms of being able to do a better job of advancing a pipeline of products and really seeing those products get where they need to go, which is uh, to the market. The company's product lines have traditionally been considered medical devices. These are devices, though, that that have therapeutic purposes. Do you think there's a 
evaluation or opportunity penalty for being thought of as a medical device company? Well, I think that's a great question because while healthcare innovation itself encompasses, uh, you know, biopharmaceutical development, um, developments in gene therapy, medical technology, medical devices, traditionally as you're talking about, and more recently, I think great advances in digital health. All of those different types of innovations, I think, are thought of differently in terms of business model, pathway to value and valuation. And you know, medical technology, medical devices, particularly in the last, I would say, 10 plus years, uh, I think the view um, in terms of valuation has changed significantly. If we look at that from either a capital market or a, a strategic perspective, and the real focus has been on revenue and revenue growth as a major driver of value. If you look at how any um, Wall Street analysts look at um, emerging growth medtech, and really medtech overall, that revenue multiple is a big driver. When we think about biopharma and we look at, you know, we shift over and say, how does, how does Wall Street value biopharma? Um, generally, you're going to see valuations built off of long-term probability and risk-adjusted discounted cash flows. And so one valuation metric is very much about the present. What is this product and this company generating with the product in terms of revenue today? And in the near future, what are the prospects for growth? But when we look at the other valuation methodology in biopharma, it's really a forward value. It's really a forward-thinking, forward-looking value. And the potential of the product, I think, is captured much more in that long-term DCF. Those differences in valuation have a big impact on the whole cascade all the way down to early stage um, innovation and how you fund early stage ideas. If you, if you use a DCF approach, you in theory can take a very early stage product, and we see this in biotech, even preclinical stage product with big potential, and, um, and be able to uh, apply significant values and therefore um, achieve access to a lot of capital to development, to develop them at a relatively low cost of capital. The med tech or medical device space, that really hasn't been the case. And, and in the last 10 years, I think that's really impacted the availability of capital for early ideas and certainly, more importantly, the availability of capital to fund the more expensive um, uh, parts of the process, late-stage clinical development, the pursuit of regulatory approvals, and then market entry. And and so when we conceived the business model for Orchestra Biomed and, and our strategy was really looking at those, those two different approaches to value and trying to see if we could create a business model for things that, yes, would be thought of as medical devices. Our products are a little, you know, I guess unconventional, you know, drug device combination product, uh, bioelectronic therapy. But yes, the markets that we expect are traditional medical device markets. But the business model is really about how do we approach realizing and building value in a different way where in many ways we think the appropriate way to view value is through a biopharma lens, a longer term forward value of our future cash flow potential rather than what are we doing today or in the very near future in terms of revenue. 
I, I think it's fair to say that the medical device industry hasn't been as successful at forging and leveraging partnerships and licensing opportunities the way the biopharmaceutical industry has. I, I imagine part of the reason for this is the cost and time to develop products hasn't been as daunting. Is this the case when you're dealing with the types of drug device combinations or something that's like a bioelectric device that's serving a therapeutic function? I, I don't think it's necessarily just about the cost or the challenges of development. I think um, there are actually advantages, I would agree, in terms of um, cost, time, regulatory hurdles for devices. I think those advantages have probably been compressed a little bit, particularly for, as you talk about, a combination or, or certainly even PMA class three devices that have really significant impact. I think the, the challenge is actually in pathway to commercialization. And that's, I think, a, a key difference why strategic partnerships haven't been, um, in the med tech world, core to advancement of products versus in the biotech world, I think we all think of strategic partnerships, licensing deals as almost, um, you know, the norm, you know, the, the most obvious path for an innovator to eventually find their products past the market. Commercialization of drugs and devices is very different. And the last 10 years has really you know, seen a lot of change in the way that hospitals are organized, ambulatory medical centers are organized, and how medical device products are evaluated and purchased and valued. And it's driven really significant changes in the commercial organizations, the, the leading med tech companies. So we've seen massive consolidation. We think about market leaders like Medtronic, Johnson & Johnson, Stryker, Abbott, Boston Scientific. Um, you know, the last 10 years has seen significant consolidation. And really, it's been in response to their customer base consolidating. The hospital and medical facility world has, has seen significant consolidation. And so it's not sufficient to show clinical evidence, gain regulatory approval, and then assume that you know entry to the market is easy in the med tech world, as it maybe once was uh, in the last you know, few decades before that. And so if you, if you think about that versus you know, the pharmaceutical world, not to trivialize um, you know the commercial challenges of pharmaceuticals, but I think people assume that you know, commercializing a drug that you've gotten approval and reimbursement for, particularly in the modern era where a lot of the most you know, significant advancements have been in rare and orphan diseases, which usually have very targeted populations, or in areas like immuno-oncology, which, you know, subtypes of, of different cancers can also often work um, very similar to uh, more rare or orphan diseases. So targeted commercialization is a, is, is it makes it a little easier. You know exactly who your customer is, and once you get over that difficult development hurdle, the path to commercialization is straightforward. And so the value driver is can you show the evidence needed to do that? And medtech, it's it's different. And so commercial development, kind of the phase right after approval, is almost like you know, I kind of think about that like what you need often to do with a drug, which is that phase three trial, and you know, it's become an added phase of development that's really been, I think, the most difficult phase 
to get a promising product to kind of a proof point of value. And that is really, you know, the, the, the thing that got us thinking about how to look at partnerships. Um, and, and when you stop and think about it, at least for some products and some markets, the idea of a smaller company that's really good at innovation and product development aligning with an established commercial organization to tackle that um, those critical late stages of both product and commercial development just makes obvious sense. You think about you know a product in our portfolio that you know has been our first major partnership called the Virtue Cerola Saluting Balloon. We see Virtue as a future workhorse product that can address very significant unmet needs that are large procedure markets in both coronary interventions and peripheral interventions. But those procedures that Virtue can address happen in cath labs and hospitals all through the United States and all through the world, in fact. And so as a small company thinking about developing the product, needing to get the product through clinical trials and regulatory approvals, and in fact, do that for multiple sub-indications, and then having to think about commercializing and providing a product that would be desired by hospitals all over the world, that's a very daunting task. And so as we thought about that product and some of the other products that we had in our um, that we wanted to assemble in our portfolio, and as we think ahead to products that would work in this model, it's really when you see a very big market, which is difficult to access, it makes a lot of sense for a small company to figure out a way to align with um, a bigger company that's already positioned in that commercial market. The bigger challenge is... How do you, how does that alignment happen and how does a small company or an innovation company that's been funded perhaps by venture capital or private equity, um, basically create a value proposition to shareholders that a long-term partnership where the value drivers ideally are a participation, a royalty or a revenue share in the long-term future value of a product. How is that going to drive kind of a return for your shareholders. Um, and, and that's, I think, something that we thought a lot about. Um, once again, when you contrast the biotech world to medtech, um, a path, a regular path to realization and liquidity for private investors in biotech company is the IPO in the public market. There are more than tenfold, and it may frankly be twentyfold, the number of IPOs for biotech companies as, as there are for medtech. I think up until uh, uh, these statistics, I don't know quite as well for the last year, but up until early 2018, there had been only 32 IPOs since 2011, the period of 2011 to 2018, 32 medtech IPOs. And I believe there was upwards of 400 to 500 IPOs, biotech and that's kind. So for medtech investors, Acquisitions, M&A was really the, you know, the, the main way to get exits. There weren't a lot of those, frankly, in that same period of time either. So if your investors are looking for a return, then the public markets are hard to access. And in fact, the public markets, there's been some, you know, a bit of a resurgence in medtech IPOs in the last few years, but still driven by those companies that have been able to cross over to revenue generation. So if you are a promising therapeutic device or medical device product that is in that in-between stage of 
clinical proof and commercial proof, and you don't generate revenue, and we go back to the question of, well, multiples are driven by revenue, is, are you totally worthless? That didn't really make sense to us. And we felt that if instead we could think about and create a company that was designed to do development and designed to do partnerships and participate through those partnerships in long-term revenue streams, and that we could be viewed, therefore, and valued as uh, based on our cash flow, that the path to, to liquidity and value would be eventually through the public market, and that would be an efficient way, and that, frankly, the company that we're building could uh, could thrive over the long term, you know, not just around one technology, but around the process of developing multiple technologies. Does that make sense, Danny? Yeah. The, uh, the deal you mentioned with Terumo included a $30 million upfront payment and a $5 million equity commitment. What has this allowed Orchestra to do, and, and what are you giving up in, in exchange for that? Yeah, I, I, so and it's broader than just those payments. Um, so philosophically, we think you know any product's future value is an opportunity to both share the risk and, and the burden as well as the rewards. So... Um, Yes, there was a $30 million um, upfront payment and investment, but a lot more than that. What the partnership really solved for us, going back to some of the comments I made earlier, is how now working with Terumo can we maximize the, the realizable potential of, of the virtue serolum saluting balloon in this very large field of interventional cardiology, coronary and peripheral intervention. And, you know, we believe very strongly in the product for a long time. And it's a differentiated product. Um, does it take a moment to create the context? It's, it's the only non-coded drug-eluting balloon. We have spent our time focusing on how do we encapsulate and protect this proven drug, Sirolimus. It's the gold standard. It's been in millions of patients, and we know it prevents restenosis. How do we combine that with another known balloon angioplasty for the drug, we needed to solve how do you get long-term tissue residence and bioavailability. We did that really in a actually a pharmaceutical approach, and we combined it with a microporous balloon. We actually deliver at the time of inflation a drug through very small micropores in the balloon. There's no surface coating, no drug to be lost in transit, and we've demonstrated both in preclinical and clinical really the, the best delivery and the needed delivery over time of the drug to get the best result. So we think that differentiation creates advantages that can be durable and that over the long term can give physicians what they're looking for in a number of indications where they'd prefer if they can avoid using a permanent implant like stent um, and get the same type of outcomes, they'd prefer to use that to leave nothing behind. So when we were on our own, we were really just thinking about one of those indications and maybe just one big market in the United States. By partnering with Taruma, we are now together thinking about the whole world, key markets, the U.S., Japan, China, Europe, and all of those global opportunities. And we're also thinking about multiple indications. So what we said, what Taruma has committed alongside us is we're going to pursue coronary indications like instant restenosis and another bigger indication, small vessel disease, key peripheral indications like below the knee, 
We have FDA breakthrough designation for ISR and for below the knee. And Terumo's upfront payment is going to help us. We need uh, to execute the first of those studies, which uh, will start next year, the coronary instant restenosis study. But they've committed to support outside of that upfront and milestone payments they'll pay in the future, the other studies. So they're going to lead execution on instant restenosis and small vessel disease in BTK in Japan, on small vessel disease in BTK in the U.S., for example. So beyond the payments, they're also taking on key responsibilities. Our product, because of the way it works, has two distinct supply chains. They've taken on the device supply chain, which is 100 years of expertise at Terumo since the manufacture of medical devices um, and overseeing that. We've retained the pharmaceutical components, this differentiated uh, extended focal release serolimus, and we'll supply that to them. So we also divided up the responsibilities that way. They're going to take on commercialization, marketing, sales, distribution. This is what they do. Terumo is a global leader in terms of vascular access, access closure, key accessories and technologies in the cath lab, and their position in cath labs around the world. So they can think about market entry and market um, expansion um, from day one on a global basis. So they're playing to their strengths. We're focusing on our strengths. And so a lot of those go beyond just the upfront payment. So, yes, we got an upfront payment. That really has energized the program. We need to be responsible for We can earn milestones. And then, but we now see a path to the full potential of the product. And then I guess the most important component for us is that we have a long-term and significant interest in the revenue that, you know, we expect that Terumo can generate with this product both through a royalty interest and through the supply of the drug. So we have, have a significant incentives to work with them and collaborate with them and to see them be as successful as possible with this product. And I think that's the key to partnerships is having uh, the right alignment of interest and the right combination of, of resources, strengths, and positioning and having a vision to take advantage of those shared strengths over a long period of time. If we are right and uh, and virtue becomes as important a product as, as we expect it can be, then um, our shareholders, along with Terumo shareholders, will be benefiting in an increasing way year over year, not just through a transaction. An M&A deal is, is essentially one company handing its opportunity, its future rewards, its future risks to another. And, and that's the end of the transaction. A partnership is about trying to uh, develop those rewards over the long term and everyone sharing in it. So we're excited about that, and, and, and I think as we as we progress, more of uh, of how powerful this partnership is, and how powerful this the partnership can be to realizing the potential of product like Virtue is going to become clear. You're also developing a bioelectric device for high blood pressure and other indications. This is your backbeat device. How, how does it work? Um, so it's exciting. Um, we call the therapy backbeat cardiac neuromodulation therapy. And inherent in that name is there's really two components. So bioelectronic medicine is a really exciting area, and I think we're going to see uh, increasing application of Essentially, electrical stimulation of the body to create therapeutic effects. 
But the most established method of bioelectronic medicine is cardiac rhythm management devices, implantable devices like pacemakers, implantable defibrillators, cardiac resynchronization therapy. These are devices that have been implanted for patients in some cases for decades. Um, large established commercial markets dominated by companies like Medtronic and Abbott and Boston Scientific, where you implant a, a device then with uh, currently wired leads into the heart. Um, we're now seeing the emergence of leadless devices. But these devices deal with um, both rhythm disorders as well as, in the case of CRT, treating problems like heart failure. And so our our cardiac neuromodulation therapy, Backbeat, works on that type of platform, and it stimulates the same pathways but in a different way to achieve um, really a long-term effect that's only enabled by neuromodulation. In this case, we're tackling really the biggest medical problem in the world. It affects uh, broadly. We're not going to tackle all of it. We're targeting very specific patients, but hypertension or high blood pressure affects over 1.2 billion people worldwide. And it's the number one contributing risk factor for uh, mortality. It, it drives heart attacks, strokes, progression to heart failure, progression to uh, kidney failure. It's a significant uh, morbid mortal, mortal event. And it's a tough uh, condition to treat. It's, it's in some ways a lifestyle disorder, disease of aging. Um, and, and currently we really use medication to treat hypertension. Our approach to lowering blood pressure really takes advantage of that, that existing device, and we're focused on pacemakers now. So you have a pacemaker in the heart, and what we're able to do is essentially control the timing of, of the beat of the heart and lower pressure on a beat-to-beat basis, really by affecting, um, we use AV timing, and we affect reduced ventricular filling, or what's called preload. So think about controlling pressure at the pump. That's not sufficient. To, to become a therapy. Really what we've done is use that ability to control blood pressure. Blood pressure is a key input to our uh, overall autonomic nervous system. Our nervous system, our body is constantly watching and monitoring our blood pressure. And when our blood pressure goes up or down, the body reacts. So since we can control blood pressure, we're, what we've learned, developed IP, and now uh, apply the therapy to, is how we can use that input and all of the endogenous or natural systems that are monitoring it to essentially lower pressure and train the body um, using that, that algorithm to accept lower pressure over the long term and actually uh, adjust itself to now a new normal of lower blood pressure. So we uh, first implanted patients with this therapy. You know, our first patient was implanted about six years ago. Our first study had two-year follow-up very significant reductions in ambulatory and office cuff pressures that we showed over two years, great safety profile, and we've actually followed patients now anecdotally out to as long as six years. In September, we presented late-breaking results at a big conference called TCT, um, where we showed in now a double-blind, randomized study that we could um, demonstrate a significant, statistically significant uh, improvement in what's really the gold standard for measuring systolic blood pressure, 24-hour ambulatory systolic blood pressure. So this is not just one reading. The patient is wearing a blood pressure monitor 
for a whole day, and you're taking readings throughout the day, getting that whole pressure profile, we lowered that, that systolic number. That's the first number. It's really the number that 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 drives um, those those key events that we worry about. We lowered it by 11 millimeters of mercury. Um, you think about that. That's really a whole risk class. Usually, you would need at least two medications to achieve that type of result. And the differential for the control group was eight millimeters of mercury. And as I said, that was statistically significant. It's a relatively small trial, so. This is uh you think about this if it were a drug as a phase two trial, fifty patients, and so we're really encouraged to see that strongest signal um, of efficacy. Our safety results were promising, and we're working now towards a pivotal trial. But once again, we want to do that with a strategic partner. Well, is that the plan to to do what you've done with Teruma and, and find a an analogous partner to advance and commercialize the product? We think it's a logical step um, and, and something we'd like to do. Once again, the, the therapy can be thought of as a, an integratable software, it really would be firmware, into a dual-chamber pacemaker. So um, our strength has been developing that intellectual property and therapy and getting this, this uh, the evidence that I, I, just, I described or at least mentioned briefly. But there are you know, a number of companies that are market leaders in terms of the hardware and the device technology and, and are actively in the market treating patients that, with devices like pacemakers. In fact, the patients we treated all already needed a pacemaker. What's interesting is we had market and a, and a really great place to apply this to a high-risk population. Um, over 70% of pacemaker-indicated patients, so there's about 1.1 million pacemakers implanted every year, These about 70% of those patients already have hypertension. They tend to be older. They clearly have comorbidities. They have hypertension and a need for a pacemaker. Most of them have other comorbidities. And they're high-risk patients. And so what's been attractive about this as an initial population is they already need the implant. Our moderato device functions both as a backbeat CNT device as well as delivers standard pacing. So we could take our therapy very easily, partner it with a market leader, integrate our therapy onto one of their existing approved premium market-leading devices. And we see that as a potentially, once again, uh, superior approach to what's the most important end goal, which is how do we with the most efficient and reliable um, uh, manner get this important therapy that could be you know, life-altering, life-saving for many patients to those patients. And so a partnership um, makes a lot of sense for Backbeat, and clearly our goal is to find the right partner with aligned interests where we both can win, and something we, we think is doable and, and would be our preferred path. There's other ways to do it, but once again, we formed Orchestra Biomed around you know, these really two flagship therapies in, in terms of our lead product because we thought um, all of the attributes, the, the, you know, the value proposition of the therapy, the construct of the therapy, the patients and the physicians we're going to work with, so the call point and the market dynamics really lent themselves to our business strategy of strategic partnering. You know, going back to our earlier conversation, in the medical device world, we think, you know, for the right products, in the right market, strategic partnerships can be a better way 
uh, to do it, a better way to, to balance the risk and reward. Won't work for everything. You know, these are important element about backbeat and virtue is they, as they are high, high value, high impact products where there's enough value where we can share in an attractive way where the opportunity we think is going to still be very attractive to our partners. So these are two great examples. And yes, we, we're, we would, we're working towards and, and we feel partnership would be a great path for backbeat. David Hockman, CEO of Orchestra Biomed. David, thanks so much for your time today. Danny, thank you very much for, uh, for the discussion. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.